0: Dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey, everyone. Before we get started, I just want to point to the wake-up call that the Donald Trump CNN town hall was for me and I think so many of us. It was a reminder of who and what Donald Trump is, why he will never be better, he will always be worse, and why we must do everything in our power to ensure that he never becomes president again. I'd love it if you'd go to jointheunion.us and sign up to join our growing army of activists around the country. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by David Pepper, the former chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party. Before that, he served as a member of the Hamilton County, Ohio Board of Commissioners and as a councilman in the city of Cincinnati. He's written quite a few books, including his latest, Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American, now available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from the Queen City, Cincinnati, Ohio. David, welcome back. Thanks, great to be with you. So, since your first book came out, The Laboratories of Autocracy, which really detailed and dissected how the republican party went through the process in a very efficient and very cost-effective way took over state legislatures in so many places at the behest of not only their ideological partners but also their business partners since that book came out and you know now with the idea and you know it's it's basically folks out there it's a handbook for what you can do to help preserve democracy what's been the most shocking surprising thing to you in that time honestly um I hate to say it, that that book sort of
1: predicted a lot of what we've seen since. I wrote it very quickly, and this is a Laboratories book, because I thought I was behind. But then as it's come out and you look at Florida, Tennessee, Ohio, everything that's happened since is frankly what the book says is going to happen. It's once they've clung to these state houses, once they've eliminated all accountability through gerrymandering, suppression, and then Democrats don't even run in these places. All the breaks are gone, all the accountability is gone, and a downward spiral will ensue. And that's sort of what I wrote in the first book and somewhat said this is what's going to happen. And I hate to say it, it's what's happening. You know, two years ago, we started to see a hint at some types of censorship. Now we're seeing it explode in states, at university, high school, libraries. It would continue to tax on democracy. What's happening in Ohio right now, trying to change the Constitution so the people are really like locked out of a gerrymandered system in much tougher ways than even a couple years ago. So a lot of what I feared was going to happen, which is where I wrote the first book, is happening. And I think people are more awake to it, which is good. But I wrote the second book because I still feel like even though people are more awake to it, too often we're still engaging in the same sort of strategies of politics. We're not adjusting to where their battle is. And I wrote the first book to try and change that conversation. But I still don't feel when I watch, you know, the biggest players in politics that they're really moving their strategies to where the battle has to be fought. So it's what I worried would happen. And I still don't see the big change that I think we need in how we address it.
0: Well, I stole this expression, but now I claim it as my own. I think the rule is you have to give credit three times and then you can say it's your own is Democrats play chess and Republicans eat the pieces. And it's a different thing. Trigby Olson, one of our senior advisors here at the Lincoln Project, said, you have to play the game you're in, not the game you know. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about. In fact, I was on a phone call earlier today, David, with someone, and we were talking about as we are recording this, the debt ceiling debacle, Republican created, is really coming to a head. And I told the person I was speaking with, when McCarthy finally got over the hurdle to be speaker, I started DMing and texting some reporters I know and say, you know, you should probably call the chamber the big banks, the biggest corporations, and say, what are you going to do to make sure this doesn't happen? And almost universally, if they responded was, you know what, that's a really good idea. I should do that. That was in January. We're almost to June here, David. And, you know, it's this magical thinking. Oh, my gosh, wait, wait, they might really do this. I think there was a, was it a Republican senator said, oh, you know what, they'll figure it out. They always do. But again, I don't think they want to, right? And that's the difference is, They're still thinking about this. And I claim Republicans, Senate Republicans, which they're complicit, but they at least still have some semblance of like getting the job done. Most of them, anyway. The Democrats, who, you know, again, as you know, as a proud Democrat, often have times wanting to put your fists up in the first place. And then the media and the institutions just being like, well, they couldn't possibly do this, right? Like they know what they're doing. And yes, they do know what they're doing, David. And again, it's not an economic fight. It's not about the deficit. It's not about the debt. It's not about spending. It's an ideological fight. It's about chaos.
1: It sure is. And the other thing it's about is we are in a world of such gerrymandered districts, and it's gotten worse in the last couple of years, it's gotten worse since I wrote the first book, that people don't understand that the incentive system in these worlds without political accountability that the Republicans generally live in is the opposite of what we all still kind of assume leads to good behavior. They have zero incentive to ever be on the same side as Joe Biden. So their instinct from the outset, even if Trump weren't saying we don't want a deal, is, wait a second, I don't want to be on anything that also has Joe Biden for it or a Democrat. Everything they know, everything they're rewarded for in their world of no accountability, and this is also true at state houses, is that you never agree with a Democrat on anything. And that's why I think the closer they get, McCarthy goes to his people and they say, no, because they actually, for them, it's toxic to be part of a bipartisan deal. And I still don't think that people come to grips with how much the incentives are screwed up when you have a world of no accountability in a general election at the federal level, at the state level. What also is screwed up? You don't care about public outcomes if you get reelected, even if they're terrible. Jim Jordan, his district is poor. It needs health care. These are small towns, but they don't get a choice because it's so gerrymandered. So if there's a economic slowdown because of of a default, but it gets Trump more likely to be president, they'll make that trade any moment because the people in these gerrymandered districts can't vote them out anyway. And so they don't have an incentive to serve the public outcomes, and they have a serious incentive to be an extremist. And that's how we should assume they're going to behave.
0: Let me ask about this. You mentioned Ohio, where you live, Tennessee, Florida, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, you name it. You know, a lot of it's the old Confederacy. Maybe it's the neo-Confederacy, not Ohio, obviously. But in the gerrymandering, you know, they've basically done all they can without starting to impede on one another's districts. But have they put themselves in a place where maybe they're the snake eating its own tail, which is these people... Were maybe conservative Republicans, maybe regular Republicans. They've gone extremist because now they're like, well, geez, yeah, I should win by, you know, 60 40 or 70 30, but like also oh, I got a lot more Republicans, which means I got a lot more crazy Republicans in my primary. Were they always naturally this nuts and of bad character, or are they chasing their primary voters who are MAGA types?
1: The snake ate the tail already. I mean, John Kasich who I think we watch now and actually give credit to that he's saying this is nuts, in John Boehner, they're the ones who gerrymandered in 2011, Ohio. And I don't think they anticipated, as they should have, that it would lead to a world of no accountability and an absolute incentive to be an extremist. And so the snake already ate the old moderate party. So the gerrymandering of 11, which was, to, I think, to gain more power, they did it to a degree where they literally created a world with no accountability. And that's why in states like Ohio, where it was the old sort of Taft Republican Party has disappeared, because the districts at the state level and the congressional level have totally changed the politics to be all about that primary. And you throw Trump, and obviously it gets worse. But this began before he even even uh, won. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, the irony is sadly that I actually think those who gerrymandered '11 went beyond what they sort of expected to happen. And now they're the ones, again, whether it be Boehner or Kasich, who are saying, my God, what happened to this crazy party of ours? Well, the heart of it began in 11, and it can't get much worse, but there is one threat that could make it a little bit worse or a lot worse, depending on where you are, and that is the new Supreme Court that is – doing away with one of the final protections against gerrymandering, which was dividing up black districts in very intense ways. And if the Supreme Court rules a certain way in some Supreme Court cases, forget Moore v. Harper, this is the case coming out of these southern states, we might see another opportunity for Republicans to more divide up communities of color so they can maybe eke out a few more seats. Like I think it was Nashville that they split in three. And so there are a few states where I, I worry, and this is to me, like the Moore v. Harper gets all the attention. But there's another, I'm blanking on the name right now, I apologize. There's another big Supreme Court case that I worry, whatever happens to Moore v. Harper, they're going to go with the gerrymandering, the pro-gerrymandering theory. And that could give them, in states like North Carolina and other southern states, more districts as soon as 2024. So there's, they can go somewhat further. But yeah, I think in the end, the consequence of this, it's one other reason beyond the, the fact that none of them are courageous enough to ever say anything about Donald Trump. But this is one other reason why institutionally, the old modern Republican party and district has disappeared, because, again, if you work with the other side, you get called a rhino, and then you're done in these primaries. And in these worlds where 95 percent of them do not have a general election, the only way they can lose their careers is in a primary. It's a downward spiral largely for that reason.
0: Right. And I go back and forth in my own head, David. Trump was the beginning of something, certainly. But I think in some ways he was also an accelerant.
1: Absolutely. So much of what started this again, it started in states and state houses before
0: Trump ever decided to run. I mean, didn't you feel like that a lot of the whether or not it was, you know, Alec, the American Legislative Exchange Council or these other groups, they were really business backed. Right. It was really about taxes and regulation. Have they done all they can on that front? So now it's like between Not much left to do from a policy perspective and being chased by these crazy culture zombies. Now it's like, okay, well, I guess we'll do this.
1: Well, it's sort of an unholy alliance because the voters are clearly responding to the far right sort of social push, which helps the financial interests get what they want done. But I want to make clear that so much of what they're pushing in states like Ohio and Tennessee and all, it's a toxic agenda. It's toxic both in terms of economics and the impact it has on people. As well as you know, abortion bans, no exceptions, in all these states that the majority actually have the opposite view. So, part and parcel with what's happening in states is they do have to continue to attack democracy, because if they ever didn't, and there were fair districts all over states like Ohio, most of the people who've been advancing this crazy stuff, as well as you know, destroying public outcomes, would lose, and they know it. So, tied inextricably to both the far right sort of social agenda as well as the economic agenda that's all trickled down, no regulation, you know, train accidents because there's not enough regulation, et cetera, That would all be a losing proposition in a fair and, and healthy democracy. They know that. So, all the work to gerrymander and suppress the vote and come up with new rules every year, too, is essential to the overall game plan.
0: So, let's get to, you know, your new book, Saving Democracy, a user's manual for every American. So, obviously, there is a lot to be done. And we see it as that there's no such thing really as an off year anymore. You know, there used to be probably in our heyday, and I don't know when our heyday was, but let's say in our old days, David, right, that, you know, it would be like 13, 14 months on, really go, 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 go. And then, you know, everything would quiet down because, you know, governing needed to happen. People were tired. Donors needed a break. Volunteers needed a break. There was always party building or some activity going on, maybe related to a legislative push or something like that. But now it just never stops, right? We've been at it three and a half years and we've never just said, you know, we're going to park the car in the garage for five or six months and we'll come back when everybody feels better. So tell us about your new book. What inspired you to do it? And we'll go through a little bit of it. But what are you hoping folks take away from it?
1: The first book got a great response. I was really honored by the response. I really appreciate your help and others getting it out there. And as you described, it's a really detailed journey through what's happening at these state houses, which I believe are clearly the front line of the far-right's attack on democracy. And at the end of the book, I go through all the things we have to do about it. And I had a whole lot of people say to me, and when you're a writer, you, if you hear the same feedback from multiple readers, you better pay attention. They're right. They're onto something. And I heard from a lot of people, my God, David, that book, I liked it, but it was so painful to read about how screwed up these places have become. I felt like I had to skip to the end to know what to do about it before I could get through the rest of it. It was so painful. So basically what Saving Democracy does is it kind of skips to the end and it says to people, listen, there's a lot of darkness out there. If you want to read about that, that's what Laboratories of Autocracy is for. And we need to understand it. You will not successfully battle for democracy if you don't understand what they are doing to attack it. But once you're in that place, this second book, the Saving Democracy book, this is what you can do yourself in your life where you are to do something about it and one of the things i worry about the way that we focus and the national media focuses and, and it's just it's sort of inevitable in some ways on everything's about the federal government and trump at mar-a-lago in the next u.s senate race for most americans that's totally disempowering because they think well outside of trying to help john fetterman or something i can't really do anything and the point is actually once you realize that the attack on democracy is in states at state houses, at school boards, where no one's paying attention, that's bad in one way, and it's working because we're not paying attention, but that also means far more than if it was only a D.C.-based battle, there's actually so much that you can do about it, where you are, and not only can, but must. And so this book says, once you see what's happening, know that whether it's running everywhere, engaging voters who have been suppressed everywhere, Making sure we stand up to censorship at the school board level, at the state level, signing up to be an elections official, because right now Steve Bannon's recruiting deniers to be in those positions. We can't let them be there by themselves. There's actually a ton you can do. If you run a nonprofit or you're part of one, that nonprofit can engage and register voters every single day, the day after an election, all the way through the next one, without even worrying about what the election cycle is. And my worry is because we always watch DC, we think, well, we're not in a swing state or district. We're in a blue area, or red area. We're stuck. We just have to hope someone else saves the day. The message of this book is the way we save the day is that everyone gets more involved. And the book says, here are the specific ways that you can get involved. And I I go through best practices, kind of case studies, organizations that can help you do this etc, etc, etc. So the book is trying to basically, as it says, be a user's manual. If you care about democracy and you're scared about what's happening, know that there is so much you can do about it. And frankly, I honestly think it's the collective decision by many people to do something about it that's our best hope that we actually get through this on the other side with a functioning democracy. So the book is really a, a call to action, but with very specific steps it lays out. I literally, you probably saw this, I have literally worksheets where people can fill out okay, here's what I do in life. Here are the nonprofits I'm involved with. Here's where I work. Every one of those parts of your footprint, as I call it, could be used to lift democracy. Too often, we just leave these things on the table because we don't realize how much we could be doing right now in our own communities. That's sort of what the book's about.
0: So some friends of ours live in Virginia, and I guess it must have been three or four years ago, maybe even five years ago now. And they went to the Virginia Democratic Party, David, and they said, "How many?" Seats do you need to pick up to take the majority in the Virginia House of Delegates? And they said, eight. And they said, okay, how many candidates are you running to try and get those eight seats? Eight. <laughs> and they're like, okay, that ain't going to work because nobody's going to bat a thousand. So they said, how about this? How about you run someone in every district? And you know what happened? They won. They took the state house. Now, I think the Senate's maybe a one vote margin, but the point is. If you don't run everywhere, you're not going to win everywhere and you're never going to win everywhere. So you got to run everywhere. That's probably confusing, David, and I'm sorry to you and the listeners. But the point is, is that if you don't contest it, you don't have a chance. And here's the other part we know is that nothing in politics ever goes as we expect it to, right? Not in the 20 plus years I've been in it. And you will win some places you don't expect because you look at out in Washington state, right? Washington three, Southwest Washington, right? This guy, crazy guy, Joe Kent beats one of the Republican members who voted to impeach Trump, he's a nut. He's just as kooky as can be, gets beaten by a moderate Democrat. Because what we're seeing, David, is normal Democrats will beat a MAGA Republican. They're doing it again and again and again. And to your point about state races in April, remember that in Wisconsin in the state Supreme Court race there, a left-leaning justice beat the whacked out MAGA conservative. And we just saw in Jacksonville, Florida, Donna Deegan, Beat the, the guy who was the Chamber of Commerce's candidate, Ron DeSantis's candidate, but didn't have anything to show for it. And I think this is the other part, too, that we need to remember. To your point about the federal government, it can do a lot. It has its role. But the places where you live and affect your life are at the local level. The state house, the city council, the county commission, the school board, right? You know, the federal government's not getting your trash picked up, David, right? They're not fixing the potholes. And I know here where I live in our our last school board race, we had someone, now we're a my county is what Rick Perry would call the proverbial blueberry and the tomato soup in Utah, but we had someone in our school board race who came in and tried the sort of MAGA Trumpy thing, got trounced because that just wasn't gonna work in this particular part of Utah, but it might work elsewhere.
1: Yeah. Well let me just say a couple things. One, not only these levels of government that deal with everyday issues that we all care about, usually far more directly at both the state house and local level than Congress. But it turns out that these are also positions with a direct impact on democracy. School boards are where they're censoring libraries. That is now a frontline office. That's not some bench to run for something else. For them, at least, that is a frontline office that can decide whether to protect democracy or to ban a whole lot of books. Same with state house, same with other levels. A mayor could do so much to engage voters of that city to register, to get that voter ID that's now required. So these are frontline positions on democracy. The other thing I'd say, and this is a part that maybe it's going to take a while to people to figure out. Yes, you run everywhere because you never know you are going to win. And if you don't, you're going to lose places you might have won. And the Kansas abortion referendum is a great example of that. But the other thing is there is a massive value in the battle for democracy by running even if you lose. I go through this in great detail in the book. About 50% of those Tennessee Republicans that voted out those two representatives, the two Justins, didn't even face an election last year, not even an opponent. And if the problem in the state house is complete lack of accountability, that gets put on steroids when these people literally don't have an opponent. In Texas, they literally refer, at least on Wikipedia, the election is canceled. And this is like, in some states, it's more than 50%. Most states, it's 20 or 30% where the extremists who pass the worst laws that are not even popular in their own states are not even facing opponents and by running against them everywhere not only will you win races you wouldn't have won not only do you force them to spend money in places they otherwise will hoard it against those eight that you mentioned you also hopefully if you're good candidates you have someone knocking on the doors in every district saying something that hasn't been heard in years Hey, did you know that state rep down the street who's so nice as your neighbor is a total extremist? Do you know that he's the reason that 10-year-old rape victim had to go to Indiana? Because he authored that bill in Ohio that made that happen. If no one's running, those conversations aren't even happening. And all accountability leaves these places. And it essentially stops being public service for these people. They are literally in power with no accountability. So running everywhere has to be the new default. Now, I will say. This is easier to say than to do. But right now, and I go through in the book how we do this, the current infrastructure of the Democratic Party. And I don't say this to be critical. I I was obviously the chair of the ODP, but I want to say it. It doesn't value running everywhere. It values running in swing places of federal swing seats. And that's about it. And understandably, we want to win those federal races. But the reason why you have a crisis of uncontested districts in state after state after state is because. There's not an infrastructure that recruits or supports or even says to that candidate, thanks for stepping up. You're a hero for democracy because you're running in a tough district. We have to create that. And this book walks through how individuals in every state in this country can start doing that. You mentioned Virginia. They did a great job a few years ago running everywhere. They flipped the state house. Who ran everywhere last time? Six months ago, Michigan Democrats, candidate in every district. I'm sure Gretchen Whitmer loved in every single district of that state there was a democratic candidate it also lifts turn up by the way but it's a crisis we often don't see it as a crisis because we're only focusing on a few senate races so these don't seem like things we should be running for but once you see that the heart of their extremism is coming through these state houses and that they're not being held accountable for any of that extremism you realize how much damage is being done and we have to step up and run everywhere to avoid that damage
0: well the other thing too that it comes along with the lack of accountability is this i'm not going to call it hubris i'll call it arrogance so you know the tennessee legislature throws out the justins almost throws out the third legislator but doesn't and now it turns out that there's all these scumbags in the tennessee legislature who are now getting the light shown on them. right the speaker doesn't really live in his district he got this great deal on a house now he's under fire i think another guy had to resign down in texas there was another guy who was you know mr family values was taken up with an intern an underage intern giving her booze, right? He had to leave. I don't know if you saw it. The speaker of the Texas legislature, David, showed up to the podium drunk last week. I think on Friday, or maybe it was over the weekend. He's so unconcerned with his position. He showed up bombed at the podium. And so it's like, sometimes I wonder to go back to the bad, you know, analogy of a snake eating its tail, if whether or not sometimes these guys, because we are still a free and open society they're like wait a second you know i can do whatever i want and americans even conservative americans are like no i don't want to put up with that anymore
1: if you run everywhere that's the only way you'll know the answer beyond scandal like booze and some of the stuff in tennessee again they are embracing an agenda that is toxic usually in their own districts there's obviously in different states a real battle over a woman's right to choose, and there's some nuance to it. But in almost every state, more than half the people support Roe v. Wade. Very few people, 10 percent or less, will support a ban on abortion, no exceptions. You know, when that 10-year-old rape victim had to go to Indiana, the reason why Republicans in Ohio tried to pretend it didn't happen is they knew that that was toxic, deeply troubling. And, and so the point is, forget even the scandal. If you had someone running in every district saying the schools are falling apart because you're trickle on policies, you're giving away the store, you're caught up in corruption, and you're doing things that only 10% of this district support, yeah, you're going to win some of these races. They are so over their skis when it comes to extremism. When we don't run at all, which we don't in all these places, they are voting for the most extreme legislation, and they're rewarded for it without a general election. And by the way, it serves them because that's what protects them from getting primaried. So they are literally right now, To go to the Tennessee Republicans when half of them don't have an opponent in general election. Their mindset is we do better by voting the two Justins out because that'll keep us being primaried. If we vote with the Democrats to keep them, that's how we lose. And when we don't run against these people, we create literally an incentive for them to be extremists as opposed to. Wow, if I vote the wrong way here, someone's going to run really hard against me in the general, and I'm going to have to answer to it, to the newspaper, to my voters, to my neighbors. I may or may not win, but I want to be able to have answers. If there's no general election at all, they don't have to answer one question about their behavior.
0: And let me just say this to anybody out there who lives in a Republican district who may be thinking of running for office. It's not going to be easy. It could be the hardest thing you ever do personally for your family elsewhere. But here's the part that is simple, if not easy. All you have to do is be normal and tell the truth. (laughs) David, like it's not a terribly complicated strategy because they're crazy and all they do is lie because the truth is always against them. The facts are always against them. And I would say just on a couple of things, too, because I think there's being normal, being honest and being decent, because you mentioned the 10 year old girl in Ohio, because that to me was really. I think a prime example of just how indecent the Republican Party has become, not only in Ohio, but also everywhere in the conservative media. I don't even want to call conservative the right wing media is they put that little girl and her family through the ringer for their own political purposes. They were willing to do that to a 10 year old little girl for their own purposes. And if you're willing to do that to a 10 year old girl who has been violated horribly and who will have to spend the rest of her life overcoming it and dealing with it, if you're willing to do that to them, you know, they always say, oh, they're willing to do if they're willing to do it to Donald Trump, they're willing to do it to you. If they, No, 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 no. If they're willing to do it to a 10 year old girl, they're willing to do it to your 10 year old girl and to your sister and to your wife, and to your mother, and they will do it. Same with these guys in Tennessee. The only thing they were missing, David, was a frickin' boss hog outfit. You know that if they could have, they would have used words like uppity and the N-word to talk about the Justins, right? They walked right up to the edge of it. The pointing and the moralizing. I mean, for God's sake, these people are amoral. To be immoral means that you think about it and you make a bad decision you make the wrong decision. These people don't even have a moral compass. They live without a moral compass. It is fundamentally undemocratic. It is fundamentally indecent and is fundamentally un-American. And to your point, these people can and should be defeated. They should never, ever, ever hold positions of public trust.
1: And the fact that the Republican leadership in Ohio, the attorney general went on Fox News, they tried to gaslight that rape victim story and say it didn't happen. I know.
0: Jim Jordan did it. The Wall Street Journal did
1: it. Yeah, Jim Jordan and, and Dave Yost. And it turns out that a local reporter found the courtroom where the trial happened. But let me also say, I really appreciate you mentioning this to those candidates, potential candidates. When you run, win or lose, you are a hero for democracy. And you are playing a role in a much bigger battle that we have to have those roles played in everywhere. There's one chapter in this book dedicated to messaging. How do you message in that kind of race? And here's the thing that I think the most successful candidates have figured out. And it's sort of like how you watch, you know, Russia goes to war in Ukraine. It turns out in a corrupt system, their army's terrible, right? When you have these corrupted states, the public outcomes are a disaster. Ohio, about 15 years ago, we had the fifth highest ranked school system in the country. We're now in the mid-20s because they're giving the store away. Small towns are are collapsing under trickle-down economics. You even saw a map not long ago about life expectancy, and you see how much worse it is in these red areas. If you're running in these places, in addition to getting into how extreme they are, and that can be a very good issue to run on when they've gotten extreme as they are. The other thing I would say to look out for in your part of that, wherever you are in this country, I guarantee you public outcomes are falling on key measurements that the people of your district who aren't as political will care about. And the best example I give of this in the book is the current governor of Kansas, a Democrat, ran very hard on the fact that Sam Brownback had destroyed Kansas public schools and she showed and it's true you watch in Georgia and Texas recently Republicans did not support the voucherizing of everything because they knew that would decimate rural schools so in all these states like the current two-term Democratic Governor of Kansas find the public outcomes that are falling that are indefensible I guarantee you there's a tie back to the State House and I'd run very hard on those issues. You know, Gretchen Whitner basically did it when she said, fix the damn roads. She found an issue of a public outcome that people think about way beyond party, and she said, because of how broken the Michigan State House is and the Capitol and the prior governor, you can't even drive down your road without ruining your car in a pothole. So there'll be a lot of public outcomes that in states like Ohio and Tennessee It's the consistent theme. I mean, they're literally using these bought up state houses, these gerrymandered state houses. They don't care about the public outcomes because they can't get knocked out by the public. So they're giving away the store of public assets to private entities. And that is inevitably leading to a downward spiral of public outcomes that everyday people care about if you make the connection back to that state house. So that's another thing I would say to anyone running. It's tough. But know that even in a more rural Republican area, there are really potent issues for you to talk about if you look closely at the outcomes that are inevitably going to be declining. And what do we see,
0: right? You privatize these things, and then when they inevitably fail, you have to socialize the costs, both financially and socially. Can I ask one question before we wrap up here? You know, there's this war on public education. You talk about Kansas. You talk about Ohio, Tennessee and Texas and Florida. They're trying to do these massive voucher programs. Those aren't union states. Those are mostly right to work states. So the teachers unions there, maybe they call them associations, whatever, but you know, they're not the powerful thing you see in Chicago or California or New York. Maybe I know the answer, but I want to hear somebody else give me an answer. Why are they attacking public education so much?
1: So, Ohio is a strong union state, but I agree with your overall point. And I didn't I wouldn't have said this 15 years ago, but whenever I see a national push really hard for policy that the public outcomes that result from that policy are declining, which they are. You know, creeping just under the surface is a whole lot of people looking for a whole lot of money. And what's happened in states like Ohio is big donors are demanding this stuff. It happens to dovetail with an ideological right wing push. But someone in all these states and nationally sees the public school funds that voters vote to approve or that are coming from the statehouse. And that's the piggy bank for them to make money out of. I mean, that's honestly, uh, that is in Ohio, the single biggest donor for a number of years to the Ohio Republican Party was a for-profit charter school outfit that turned out to be a total scam. And every time they convinced a kid to take a quote-unquote school online, they would get thousands of dollars and that money would leave the public school. And that's why we were ranked fifth 15 years ago and now we're in the mid-20s. So when you see something that's really bad policy, the outcomes show that it's failing, but they never stop doing it. It tells you it's about money, and they are basically trading a poor public outcome for the donations they're getting from people who are profiting from them giving them public assets. So the privatization push for schools is almost the perfect example of what happens when you have gerrymandered state houses. The local folks whose schools are getting worse, who are paying more in taxes, who have to pay 500 bucks for Johnny to play football, they can't vote the person out who's caused that. If they even know it's because of that state house, they'd normally blame the school board. So you're not accountable as that politician for the bad public outcome that your schools are getting worse. But the big private for-profit donor who's getting all that money gives you a big chunk of it as a political you know, contribution. So you're getting ahead in life and you won't be chased out in the primary. So The incentive system right now is even with the public outcomes plummeting, you keep doing it because you're not interested in those anyway. You're not accountable for those outcomes, but you love getting all the support you get from those who are profiting from it. So it's really one of the most clear examples to me of why these gerrymandered state houses are so different, because the way I think about it, if you are willing to trade what I would consider the most important thing a state can do, which is educate its young people. If you are willing to trade that to the highest bidder, what won't you trade? And the answer turns out to be pretty much nothing. And so when you hear them talk about policy, education policy, this is about basically the corruption of public service. It's not about policy. If it was about policy, the minute you see school systems falling, which they do in these systems, you change direction. These systems are falling and they keep right on going because that's not really what they're going after, public policy. They're going after big bucks.
0: Right. And as I said several times now, they know what they're doing, they know it's wrong, and they do it anyway. David Pepper, before I let you go, where can everybody find you online, and where can they find your new book?
1: So I'm at Twitter at David Pepper. As you know, I'm pretty active. I am on Substack under David Pepper, and I'm, I'm trying to grow that. I created a website, savedemocracy.us, and if you go there, you'll see a lot of the little lessons in the book. You'll even see some of those worksheets. They're online. You can download them and print them out. And you can buy this book, as you said, you know, on Amazon, Bardsnoble.com, order at your local bookstore if that's how you prefer it. Tell your library to stock it. This is trying to give people who are frustrated, who watch the same shows that we watch, but no one ever seems to tell them what to do. This is saying these are the very specific things you can do in your neck of the woods right now. Don't wait for next fall of 24 as if everything's about the presidential. Let's go win Virginia State House this November. Let's stop this Ohio constitutional attack this August, and then let's roll in next year. By the way, that starts with, as you said, start recruiting your state so you have a candidate in every single district. That work should start right now. This book walks through all of that and then some, so I hope people get a lot
0: out of it. Well, David, thank you for joining me as always. And gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at @ReedGalen Galen and at Instagram at read underscore Galen underscore LP. David Pepper, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at LincolnProject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit JoinTheUnion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.